All right, what is up, you guys? Welcome to the Abstract Audio Podcast. I'm your host, Derek. We have quite a range of topics today, um, starting with the tragic news we got over the weekend of the passing of traveling food journalist Anthony Bourdain. I'll be reflecting on what I would say I've learned from him and what I feel so many could learn from such a brilliant traveling food journalist and just man in general. Uh, Following that will be a bit of sports. I mean, we had the finals wrapping up last week and a phenomenal UFC card over the weekend. Following that will be my review or just initial thoughts on Kids See Ghosts and then a bit of sneaker news and then an update yet again on the Pusha T and Drake beef. Um... And lastly will be the Fenman technique, a efficient learning technique to streamline learning in four steps. For sure, that sounds like an ad. I assure you it's not. It's just some interesting shit I read over the weekend. I feel like I could benefit from, and in turn, I wanted to pass it on to you guys. So with that being said, let's get into it. Um, Man, Anthony Bourdain, it's, it's interesting because... Okay, so if you guys are unaware, you know, as I said, traveling food journalist, um, he, the show that I knew him from was uh, Parts Unknown, I believe it was called, and mind you, I didn't watch closely, like I was not a, a super fan, admittedly, I just watched in passing, but uh, he had such brilliance about him and, and about how he would tell a story through food and through traveling to any given place that I feel like, you know, his brilliance was immediately evident. Um, So I was, so breaking it down from the moment of, I was on Twitter the moment that, you know, he started trending. And um, I'm sure I'm not alone. I get a bit of anxiety whenever whenever I check the top trending topics on Twitter. And uh, whenever I see a name, I'm sure that it's death. I'm like, that's definitely death. And it's fucked up, but it's true. And uh, in this case, unfortunately, it it was the case. And, um, you know, just all the headlines, Anthony Bourdain dead at 61. And uh, I was just taken back. Obviously, you know, I immediately felt the sadness. But um, what was interesting to me and, and what kind of resonated was just the level of tragedy that we're constantly subject to, you know, just with social media, or rather not even social media, but just social media making news so immediate, and and it's constant. So these, you know, these tragic deaths or suicides seem like they're happening all the time, and in reality they are, but we're just not we're we're not used to that that level of exposure to to the tragedy i feel like um and i feel like this even echoes into extremely tragic situations not to measure tragedy but you know um chaos like like the school shootings and whatnot i feel like with it being you know these two things being so widely covered i mean obviously 
covering a suicide is is different oftentimes it's paying homage to you know to the person but uh it just seems so constant in in today's news cycle and um i don't know man i can't help but feel like yeah we're not supposed to be or not that we're not supposed to be obviously this is our evolution but yeah it's just going to take time to evolve cuz i mean never before was someone subject to you know seeing news about a suicide and then you know just a tv personality you may have you know just had fun memories of or whatnot and you know they taught they might have taught you things or so on and so forth obviously with all the school shootings i mean the volcanoes causing mass destruction wiping out entire villages um what is it fucking isis snipers taking out medics that were just trying to help wounded on the field i mean just extremely tragic shit and we're constantly subject to it that's kind of where my mind immediately went because it was i you know i didn't watch um too much of anthony bourdain's shows but you know it still i i still felt that shit and um and that's why I wanted to try and take this opportunity to spin it for a positive or, or rather seek the positive and um, just kind of give you guys my thoughts on what I've learned from him. So my interpretation of Anthony Bourdain is just this brilliant journalist that would go to, you know, the edges of the earth and just explore these hole-in-the-wall places, and he would, of course, it, I think it, it was mainly focused around the food, I would say, but he told a story through that. He told a story about the surroundings, about why, and you know, why they're eating the food, the cultural significance of it, and it was just so informative, and he told this story in a brilliant way that otherwise most people wouldn't want to hear, you know, but um, he sewed it together so beautifully. And uh, he just, he his brilliance was evident. And um, so before, you know, I don't want to seem like I'm this super fan because I'm not, but uh, I do think there are things to learn. And um, I guess also what he kind of taught me was just to, to grow comfortable in uncomfortable situations, put yourself in uncomfortable situations or just situations that are unknown or unfamiliar and grow from them. Cause oftentimes we find ourselves in those, you know, like we find out who we are in those situations. And, um, yeah, I guess I don't want to ramble too much, but, uh, so I'll, I'll finish this segment by, um, reading you guys two quotes of his that stood out to me. Um, the first being, travel is about the gorgeous feeling of teetering in the unknown. So again, just, you know, putting yourself in those situations and finding yourself in those situations is kind of what I take from it. And then also my favorite, um, if I'm an advocate for anything, it's to move as far as you can, as much as you can, across the ocean or simply across the river. Walk in someone else's shoes or at least eat their food. It's a plus for everybody. Um, and that just kind of leaves me with thoughts of, 
I don't know, man, the, the importance of not only traveling, but just getting out of your hometown. I'm sure there's a staggering statistic of people who live their entire lives in their hometown. And that's crazy to me. You know, being born into this beautiful world that is just so expansive and so unknown to the average person. Um, we just know what we read in books. We've, we've often never seen it and never experienced cultures or traditions uh, or just seen foreign people and foreign sites like, you know, and just to experience the unknown, I guess. Um, I feel like Anthony Bourdain really taught me something beautiful in that. And so I wanted to pass that on to you guys and look back on what he left and, and learn from it. Um, so yeah, that, that is that. Now let's get into sports. Um, so the finals wrapped up in quite the anticlimactic way. Mind you, I admittedly, I'm not the hugest basketball fan. I'm kind of the dude that's only there for the finals or I watch from afar. Cause I know obviously LeBron is likely shaping out to be the best basketball player ever. Um, and I've heard a lot of those talks this season and with the season he's had getting his team pretty much single-handedly to the finals as he did, it was, uh, it was pretty sad to see the outcome in the finals, you know, obviously Golden State, a very worthy opponent, um, phenomenal team. I mean, God damn, to think they're only going to get better is crazy to me, um, but that takes me to my next thought. People, there there have been claims, I've read a couple, or not a couple articles, I, I read one article on um, KD claiming that he ruined the NBA. Um, and, and in that meaning that he just ruined the competitive nature because he threw things completely out of balance. And I mean, initially my thoughts are, that obviously no one wants to see like this superpower team, this super team in any sport, right? You would like to see the talent uh, divvied out evenly, I guess, so that you would see the max level of competition. Um, but with him joining the Golden State Warriors, who already had a phenomenal team, obviously just makes them that more phenomenal. But on the same note, I'm a huge advocate for LeBron leaving Cleveland. And initially, I thought that was disloyal, you know, to see these huge NBA players leave their teams constantly, their hometowns constantly, and uh, just go and chase these super teams, obviously, as LeBron's guilty of with the Heat move and likely this upcoming move that I think is inevitable. Um, I'm thinking the Rockets is the obvious choice, but uh, I've heard talks of the Lakers for some reason. I don't understand that. Um... I don't I just don't think their team's that that amazing to build on. Obviously, he's chasing rings, which I I've thrown it around in my mind. It kind of makes sense, man. When you're that great, you kind of can't I don't know, it's something we can't relate to really though, cuz it's like you're 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 out for legacy. You want to leave. Well, clearly he is. Not every player. I mean, every player's goals um are different, but I think it's pretty evident he's out for legacy, you know, setting records, the the, the most rings, so on and so forth. And um, 
and I don't know, obviously he's constantly scrutinized for that, but uh, more recently I, I've come to feel like, it, obviously it's his choice, but it's it's the smart choice if that's what he wants to chase, you know, to go from team to team and see what he has to work with there, because really he's just looking for the most equal level of greatness, and it's going to be hard to find that. Um, his efforts are undeniable, though. I don't see how you can't be a fan of his, you know, of, of basketball and be a fan and not be a fan, rather, of his performance. Um, yeah, I mean, so with that being said, I want to go into this article on uh, KD defending himself against those claims that he ruined the NBA or rather the balance in the NBA. Um, so 2018 NBA Finals MVP Kevin Durant has been faced with more scrutiny after the Golden State Warriors swept the Cleveland, the Cleveland Cavaliers, which is a fucking amazing feat, by the way. Because um, to speak on LeBron's greatness and then to think that they swept him, fucking crazy. Um, so the Golden State Warriors swept the Cleveland Cavaliers to claim their back-to-back NBA Finals championship title over the weekend. With the Warriors' 4-0 series win over LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavalier, um, many have been quick to to criticize Kevin Durant's move to the Golden State, stating that he has, in quotes, ruined the NBA and the league's competitive balance. Um, firing back at the critics, Durant told Yahoo Sports, My responsibility is to my skills. My responsibility is to myself. I'm not worried about the NBA. That's their job. They make too much money. They ain't paying me enough to to dictate the NBA. I should be making more money if if that's all on me. Um, my responsibility is to whatever team I play for. All that other stuff, that's on y'all. As Golden State continues to stack its team with superstar players, many are wondering what the future in the NBA will look like. Sound off in the comment section below. Um, since moving to Golden State, Durant has claimed two championships and a finals MVP title. So I don't know, man. Um, <laughs> I see how people are putting the blame on him, but I also don't think it's his fault as an individual. It's just obviously his skill level really tipped the scale over there. Um, it was unfortunate, I'll say, because you want to see a battle between those two teams, but I mean, I don't know. I'm conflicting on it, but I'm also not that informed on it. So what do you guys think? Um, you know, especially the more informed opinions. I often find that it's hard to get a a genuine opinion just because fandom often takes over. And it's just like either I'm a fan of Golden State, so fuck yeah, they earn that. Or it's... Uh, I'm not a fan of LeBron, so fuck him, and I'm glad Golden State won, even though they're not my favorite team. So it often turns into fandom and and bias based on fandom. But, uh, yeah, if you guys can be as unbiased as possible, what do you guys think? Um, I just hope that next year we see more of a balance and uh, definitely more of a interesting finals. But uh, for now, I mean, you can't help but congratulate the champions and in an impressive performance, nonetheless. So, th- those are my thoughts on it. Now, getting into the UFC, um, what a phenomenal card! It was UFC 225. It was on Saturday. Um, Yoel and Robert Whitaker were the main event. 
So let's see. Um, I have a couple notes on the fights. Carla Esparza being my first. Um, her performance against Claudia Claudia Gadelia um, was impressive, and I thought it, it went to a controversial decision. Uh, Claudia got the nod, but um, that that was I was actually pretty upset. It's rare that because I often. I don't know. I think the judges, obviously, they have their moments uh, more often recently. You know, it's been even spottier. But um, Carla Esparza just, she looked like, I I thought for sure she was going to be dominated, to be honest, from the start of the fight. Um, But she staggered Claudia a couple of times. And it it was insanely impressive. I mean... Claudia is a top-tier opponent, you know, and I and my initial thoughts on the fight were okay, Carla's just being thrown in there to for Carla or for Claudia to earn her way back to a title shot, right? Um and for her to put up such a fucking fight and I think when um it was very upsetting to see uh Gadelia get the nod, but um, yeah, I mean, I hope with a performance like that, we'll see Carla come back and dominate her opponent, or we, we saw her skill level, which was the most important thing, and it was very impressive, so that was, um, that was a standout performance, in my opinion. Then Holly Holm, I mean, holy shit, I, obviously, I know of Holly Holm's skill set, she's a, a phenomenal competitor, um, but, her against Megan Anderson, or Megan Anderson, I believe is how they're pronouncing it, um, it was obvious that Megan just has such a frame that she has a lot to, to work with, and her flaws were exposed in this fight, it was reminiscent to me of the, um, the Francis Ngannou and Stipe Miocic fight, uh, obviously not quite to that extent, but it was just crazy because I had no knowledge of Megan coming into this fight. And um, and I just saw her highlight reel, and I knew she was a phenomenal striker. You know, there were tons of uh, stoppages in her highlight reel. And so, and, and also she had staggered Holly early on. Um, I believe it was with a punch. And so I was, I was worried. I didn't know... Um, just what what kind of strength she had possessed or or whatnot, but um, I knew Holly is a well balanced fighter. Her striking, you know, obviously her kicks, um, and she proved to be worthy, you know, to to match uh, Megan in that respect. But uh, it was really once she took her down that she just dominated, and um, I mean Megan had little to no defense, and it was crazy to see, but. Uh, I'm, with that being said, I'm excited to see what's next for Holly Holm and, um, and, for, and for Megan Anderson as well. Obviously, her flaws have been exposed um, to herself as well, though, you know. And I hope that she just works on those and improves because and, now she knows where to work on. And because um, especially with her frame, man, um, her frame, to me, it, it reminds me of John Jones, just her proportions. And that can be a huge asset to, you know, just a huge tool 
in MMA. So I hope to see her come back and, and be stronger than ever. Um, now, next, we have the most hated Kobe Covington and Rafael Dos Anjos. Um, God damn, man. I knew uh, Covington and his skill set was something great when I saw him. Uh, who was it? Donald Cerrone. Um, he had a phenomenal performance against uh, Cowboy. And watching that, you know, knowing of Cowboy's skill set and seeing him just get pummeled the way that he did, I believe it was stoppage in that fight. And, um, yeah, so it was evident. And then coming into this fight, man, five rounds. It's, it's hard because this dude talks so much shit. And it's it's not even good quality shit. Like, it's, like, tongue-in-cheek shit. Like, he knows that it's cringy. Um, and, and it obviously makes it easy to hate him. But clearly, he's holding the title belt now. Or the, um, what the fuck do they call it? The uh, interim belt. And then that's crazy. Because that, that, that rise to the top was so fast. Um, but even more impressive was his performance. I was blown away. I mean, five rounds, and he was in Dos Anjos' face for every moment. And that's the thing is, it's crazy because I was thinking about it, and whatever Dos Anjos' strategy was, it was out the window because when you have an opponent that's just uh, just suffocating you the way that Kobe was, it's hard to get out any of your plan. So you have to blitz and come up with something on the spot. And um, just the pressure that he forced and continued to force. I mean, at the start of every round, being in uh, Dos Anjos' face, he would sprint over to his side of the ring. And just from that moment until the bell, just be right on top of him, up against the cage, in, uh, in mounting him, so on and so forth. It was just crazy to see and just throwing, just throwing the whole time. I mean, it was very impressive. And uh, shit talking aside, you know, this is really, I think, on, on the world stage, such a showing of his skill. It, it was it was phenomenal, man. Um Kobe really is something special. It's just, you know, obviously I wish that he didn't have the shit talking. He doesn't need it. Clearly, when you have that skill set, I mean, Dos Anjos is a top-tier opponent, one of the best in the world, and I couldn't be more hyped to see him um, take on Tyrone Woodley because Tyrone Woodley is so strategic. You know, hearing him on Rogan's podcast, he just thinks in such a strategic way. He breaks down opponents. Uh, it, it's it was phenomenal to hear him, you know, even just speak on how he views MMA and fighting in general. Um, so if you guys haven't checked that out and you're a fan or you're just a fan of MMA, I recommend you check out that um, episode of Rogan's podcast. But um, yeah, man, phenomenal performance. Uh, I could do without the shit talking, but I think I speak for most when I say that. So I'm really not saying anything new. Uh, oh, I completely skipped over CM Punk's uh, terrible fight, but I'll get to that last, I guess. Um, now, let me get to it now, because then the the main event was something fucking phenomenal. So let's get this shit out of the way. Um, CM Punk, 
I hadn't watched his first performance, man. I, I have to admire the heart of this guy to try and come into the sport. And, well, well, not even in that aspect. I have to admire the heart of him to see the beating that he took. And he just kept going at, what the fuck was his name? I don't even know his opponent's name. Um, Mike Jackson. You know, he just kept coming forward and getting knocked the fuck around. But uh, he was persistent. And that heart is admirable, but it just proved that he shouldn't have been in there in the first place. And, um, I mean, it was it was crazy because his lack of being able to dodge these strikes really made it evident that this is, you know, high tier level. Like, just, I don't know, the fighting in general, you know how everyone feels like they could do it in the back of their mind. Well, most people, the average fan feels like oh well they they feel like it's it's pretty simple it's something they could accomplish right or something they could go in there and do better um but he really made it evident that it's you know even against this striker I believe the dude Mike Jackson had won four fights in boxing and then he had only one fight in MMA lost that fight um but I was almost more disappointed in him than CM Punk um, he just made it such a shit show and just clowned the whole time. There were videos on Reddit that I saw of him uh, tickling CM Punk when they were on the ground. And that shit is just disgraceful to the sport, in my opinion. His whole performance, I mean, from the tickling, I mean, I can't even fucking believe I'm saying that. In a professional, in a professional MMA card... One of the top cards, nonetheless, one of the top of the year, um, a dude tickling another dude. What the fuck, man? And then also with him just standing on top of, or not standing on top of him, but mounting CM Punk and looking away as he struck and, and hitting him. And it was fucking just sad to watch, man. Um, sad for the sport. I'll say that. That was a fucking embarrassment. And, um... And then to top it all off, the selfie as he gets his hand raised. It's just like, get the fuck out of here. And Dana made it clear in the press conference afterwards that both of them are out. And um, I think that's fitting. You know, CM Punk, the heart is admirable. But this is top-tier, world-class fighting. Don't come in here thinking because you have a name that you can compete. I mean, you know, and disrespecting everyone in the process. And that's also on Dana. You know, for letting him just because he has a name to come in here and, you know, like disrespect the whole sport in the process. Um, Dana had also also mentioned that in the press conference that um, he regretted putting the fight on the main card because originally it had been on uh, the prelims and then he bumped um, all of the fights below it and put it on the main card, which I know there was a lot of criticism, um, you know, from, uh, Brandon Schaub and, and many people just for, you know, seeing, I mean, it's, it's fucked up, man. The whole thing, um, just devalues the whole sport. So he regretted that and that's good. Hopefully he learned his lesson. Um, you know, this shit is a sport. It's not a, it, although it is entertainment, it's firstly, it's a sport. And, um, 
Yeah, that shit does not mix when you bring just a name into it. And hopefully, you know, that's evident now. Um, now, to the main event. One of the best fights I feel like I've seen, and, and I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that. Um, Goddamn, what a performance by both of them. My, let me remind you, Yoel Romero is, what, 40? 41? And he just put on a performance like that. That blows my mind. Um, when you see most fighters that are in their 40s, they're on the decline. And he's competing at a world-class level. Now, if that's all based on, you know, who knows? I don't want to get into um, substance, you know, uh, steroids and shit like that. But there are a lot of accusations to be in that shape at 40. Um, I get it. But uh, also, you know, he's been doing this his whole life. And they talk about it on Rogan's podcast, a phenomenal podcast, by the way. Um, Joey Diaz was on as well. And and it's always going to be entertaining when that man is on anything. So um, if you haven't checked out that pod, that podcast, um, do check it out. It's a it's a dope listen. But um, he talks about how he was wrestling since what like fucking before he was ten, I think, and just so his whole life. And mind you, that does affect your you know your entire gene, like your genetics, right? I feel like it would have to, um, for you to start something that young, your body is going to adapt in ways, you know, in, in better ways than it would if you started, if you were even 15 or obviously if you were 20. And, um, so yeah, in that regard, you know, that was kind of his answer, I think, to Joe asking him about the accusations about, um, whatever substances, and uh and and I can respect that and and it does definitely have to have some influence on his build but um regardless that's that's not the point a, a phenomenal performance by both fighters i mean to see Whitaker stick through this i believe they said in the third round he broke his right hand and joe made it pretty clear in the commentary saying that he was not throwing it at all and obviously, once Joe brings it up, it becomes so obvious. And, um, yeah, he was just throwing left jabs and mixing in kicks and just trying to avoid the bull um, because Yoel would just defend for an extended period of time. I also admire that he came in here with an entirely different strategy. This is what I was kind of worried about initially um, because in the first fight, he tried to constantly take Whitaker down and ended up gassing himself out. In this fight, he sat back, defended, and then, you know, in his his strong suit being his strength and his brute force, he would explode at, you know, at just random moments. And I don't know, man, what a fucking fight. Um, Obviously, Whitaker ended up getting the nod. And uh, initially, I was upset. I wanted Yoel to uh, take the title. Well, in this case, it was, you know, he didn't make weight, so he wouldn't be the title holder. So it'd be kind of anticlimactic. I, w- I was interested in how the UFC would work that out. Because um, they're not, it's not likely that they're going to make a third fight. Which after this fight, I would, I personally would love to see a third fight. But Dana in the, uh, in the press conference didn't seem to favor it. He had said, as in regards to um, 
to Yoel's future. He said that he recommends going up a weight and just fighting at that weight. But uh, I, I, for one, would be up for a third fight, especially after this performance. Um, I think the strategy was, I mean, he had uh, Whitaker rocked, I don't know, four times. And, and, and then also the resilience of Whitaker. You, you can't help but admire that. Um, fuck, man, to be in there with a broken hand, be rocked multiple times. Both fighters, I think it was after the third round, just visibly drained like dead and to come back and keep fighting and keep avoiding this animal that's on the other side of the cage um you know and that would just explode in these outbursts I don't know it was it was a phenomenal fight to watch um I hope you guys got the chance it was it was amazing um one of the best fights definitely of the year but I feel like one of the best fights I've seen and that may just be because it was recent that that I'm so hyped on it, but um, I don't think so. I think everything that these two men gave was uh, it, it resulted in one of the best. Um, so with that being said, that wraps up the sports. Try to keep it brief. I know not everyone's into sports. Um, now on to kids see ghosts. So my initial impression, um phenomenal I it's I don't know man it's hard to say how phenomenal it is and not be pissed that it's so short um I mean with seven tracks I get it it's it's dope because you have you know obviously no filler the way I look at it okay so I was listening to it and I was blown away by it and I, I just couldn't help but think, like, damn, man, this, so 35 tracks, I think, will end up what we'll be getting, because, let's see, we have Pushes, we have Kanye's, we have a Kid See Ghosts, and then we have Nas this week, and then Tayana Taylor, so, so yeah, 35 tracks, and just in these three projects alone, the Push, the Yay album, and Kids See Ghosts, um, the production varies so much and in such beautiful ways. Hats off to Yay for that. Um, 35 tracks, all Yay produced. When I was listening to it, I couldn't help but worry that it's going to be a long ass time before we get more music. Now, mind you, that's maybe that's selfish or maybe that's just not appreciating the moment obviously these are albums i'll go back to for the next you know five years plus i mean they're, they're phenomenal albums um well pushes is undeniably you know up there and then this one kids see ghost yay yay's album will mix in with his other albums quite well but um regardless you know we'll, obviously we'll all return to them but it just worries me, man, because even with these three albums, I just think of what the rollout would have been if they would have been traditional product, prod, uh, not products, projects. Um, so say, for example, you know, Push's album was supposed to come out at the top of the year. I could see it being pushed back. Ye's album coming out. Then maybe mid-year, we would finally get Push's album. And then... Cuddy's album would be rumored or something and then we would finally get it at the end of the year and and this is all hypothetical but you know typically we would get 
maybe if even these three projects in the course of a year and so for us to get them in the course of a month that blows my mind man and also i commend yay for there's there's got to be a lot of doubters you know and for him to keep this up and in fact initially when he started leaking all of the dates and, and or in his twitter rant not not leaking but just announcing all of the dates i guess which in in retrospect i wish he wouldn't have could you imagine if he didn't announce these dates and we just randomly got a push album that's phenomenal all yay produced we got yay's album that you know speaks a lot on what's in his mind and what he's going through which is crucial for the time you know given the rants and uh just the the public outbursts and then a random ass Yay and Cuddy album? Like what? And then a Nas album that seems unreal? And, and I'm so excited. I mean, I, I think the average fan probably isn't as excited. Because I think, to me at least, in the way I, I view Nas, I think most people view him as pretty niche. Like, they, they're often not, not too into him. Uh, I've been a, a Nas fan for some time now. So uh, I'm extremely excited to hear him, period, but also over Ye production. And then Tayana, I mean, I know how talented she is, and I really don't know what to expect. In all honesty, that's the, le- the one that I'm least excited for, but uh, th- I think that only means that I'll be the most pleasantly surprised by it. Um, so yeah, man, I mean, seven project or seven records, seven tracks, uh, let's see, I took notes on all of these as I was listening to them. Mind you, these are initial thoughts, so um, I, I might update you guys in the coming days or in the coming week. Um, first off, the artwork. I've mentioned this before, I mentioned it in the previous podcast, but goddamn, man, this has to be, yeah, this, this is one of my favorite album covers. This, this shit is just so beautiful. Um, when the merch dropped, I, uh, admittedly, I'm not a huge fan of the merch. I think that it's, you know, for a while now, it's been half-assed and just kind of thrown together with these, you know, with just the titles on it in a, a font unique to the album and then a photo. But in this case, that's all it took because I loved the photo so much. So I pulled the trigger right away on the hoodie, um... I can't wait to get that in. For sure, it'll probably be like a fucking month. But uh, yeah, the artwork. And I have a, a news bit on where the artwork came from. Um, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But um, so on what track was it? The opening track, Ye's, uh, his fucking, I don't know what you would even call it. Just his yelling and his da-da-da-da, all that shit. Um, it was a bit much at first. I found it obnoxious when I first heard it. And, um, I I watched some of the listening party. And this is also what I wanted to make note of to you guys. Um, the Wave app, W-A-V. If you guys don't have it downloaded, I recommend you do because, um, for obviously Ye's album and now with the Kids See Ghost album, they had the listening parties live streamed, uh, over it. And uh, it's just kind of a dope experience if you have time and you're free at that moment. 
Um, I believe they've always been scheduled for 9 o'clock. They usually start, I think the Ye one started at like 9.15 or 9.30. Uh, the Kids See Ghost one took a while, though. Um, that one was delayed a bit, and the app crashed. But I recommend that you guys download it. I feel like it's it's a given that they'll they'll continue to do this for Nas's album and Tayana's album. So if you guys are fans and you want to check it out, I recommend you do. I tweeted it out, but it was like at the last second. So I don't know if you guys caught that tweet. Um, but I'll, I'll keep tweeting them out so that if you guys don't have the app downloaded or you need a reminder, um, you'll see the tweet. Try and get you guys on there so you can view it. Um, but yeah, so in the listening party, I heard Ye fucking screaming and shit. And I thought it was obnoxious at first. But um, through throughout multiple listens, I actually think it's pretty dope. Uh, the rhythm that he just, you know, the cadence that he finds with his yelping and whatever you want to call it, his screeching, um, is actually pretty dope. I think it actually accents the beat pretty well. Um, and yeah, just the the rhythm that it gives to the instrumental is is pretty dope. Um, then the fire track, there's like. I would say a a Western rebel outlaw vibe that I get from it. Oh, and then also with the listening party, um, the standout what I what I thought was really dope is that they uh, took people in buses to a ghost town in I believe it's Southern California, and um, I don't know just of of photos that I've seen on social media. It looked extremely dope. It it seemed to, and and so that's kind of what I was picturing, you know, when I was listening to the album. Obviously, the Kids See Ghosts title already implies that, you know, ghosts in it. But then the ghost town just kind of sets the the vibe for this eerie, forgotten Western town. And uh, I thought this fit that perfectly. So I could only imagine being there. Um, Then, let's see, the audio at the beginning and throughout of fourth dimension uh might be the hardest thing i've ever heard um probably my favorite cutty flow just when he gets on this track that that is actually yeah to date up there you know obviously and my relationship like cutty's been complicated man because obviously you know there's no fucking with man on the moon and man on the moon too um huge huge albums i think for my entire generation i don't think i'm going on too much of a limb by saying that um but i will say that um i have been i I haven't been listening to cuddy's recent projects that much you know the wizard album there's there's been a lot man a lot of artistic growth and and just kind of in sporadic directions and so it has been hard to follow and be a fan of everything. Um, so at some point, I kind of just distanced myself. I think it was Speeding Bullet that was the first album that I just entirely didn't listen to from Cuddy. And, um, but then his most recent project with, um, what was it, Speeding, I think, was on it. And uh, Rose Golden were some of the tracks that I liked. Um but uh and i like some of the vibes that he had on it it was promising but now to hear this again seven tracks just isn't enough i need to hear i need to hear cuddy on yay's production 
every project from now on. I think they just accent each other so well. Um, and I hope they notice that. You know, I think it's pretty obvious. I think the reception of this album, you know, people really enjoy it. And there's a reason. I mean, these two artists come together and it's magic. Um, so, yeah, Fourth Dimension, uh, my favorite Cuddy Flow. And then Free is Beautiful Chaos. I need to listen to it a couple more times. I don't feel like I've fully digested it. Um, but there's something there. I really enjoy that track. Um, so Ye's lyric on Reborn, or his lyrics rather, on Reborn, I think are some of his strongest. That entire verse, um, both him and Cuddy shine on the entire track. Um, that for for that reason, it, it's one of my favorite. And uh, I love the progression of the track. It's, uh, I would say it's repetitive in a beautiful way. Um, and then... Uh, Cuddy coming in on the odd beat that Kid Sea Ghosts introduces, the, the track Kid Sea Ghosts introduces, is uh, is the point that I feel like I first, I first felt like I really fuck with the album. That was the moment. And um, the entire melancholy, is, is, I, would, I would describe it as a melancholy rebel vibe that it, that it gave me. And yeah, I just really fuck with it, man. Um, then the Cuddy, the Cuddy montage, uh, Lord shine your light on me, save me please, those lyrics are fucking powerful, those alone, I mean, and, and it was a beautiful closing song, so that's just my initial interpretation of the album, kind of a couple of notes on it, but um, yeah, I feel like it's only gonna grow on me even more from here, and uh, fucking i'm just thankful man this was probably the album not that i was looking forward to most it was up there i would say yay yay i was probably looking forward to most maybe why i was also the most let down because my expectations were so high but um with this one i just really didn't know what to expect and um it's beautiful man i i just really hope we see more from uh kanye and cuddy or even if again even if it's a cuddy project i just hope yay is there for him uh, really producing and overseeing the whole thing. Clearly, they're on to something. Um, so now getting into the artwork, the background of the artwork. So the artwork that inspired Kid Cudi and Kanye West Kid Sea Ghost album cover is a 2001 painting by Takashi Murakami called Manji Fuji. Um, so uh, let's see... Last night, Kanye West and Kid Cudi premiered their much-awaited Kid Sea Ghost joint album in an exclusive listening, uh, exclusive listening party in Santa Clarita, California. The seven-track project features cover artwork by Takashi Murakami, who collaborated with Ye on his graduation cover, one of my favorites, um, alongside creating the animation for his Good Morning music video. Phenomenal fucking video. Um... The kids' visual now adorns new commemorative merch for the music duo, boasting a vibrant composition that takes inspiration from a Yukio-e woodblock print crafted by Mirakami back in 2001, dubbed Manji Fuji, sized at 8 and 7 eighths by 11 and 3 fourths inches. Um, 
Similar visual elements observed in both artworks include the backdrop of Mount Fuji, Murakami's oval characters that are painted atop the other, as well as a pair of bending trees. Um, the positioning of these elements in each piece remains remains the same except for the oval characters in kids which are minimized and placed more to the left when compared to the original the most fascinating component is the inverted kanji characters in kids that translates to chaos um man i mean it's just such a fucking gorgeous cover they have it right here i i don't know man i'm just blown away by the cover um but yeah, kind of a dope little backstory on it. Um, you, I, I recommend you guys check out the original. Uh, if I remember, I'll try and tweet it out for you guys. And um, yeah, just to see how it relates, in, especially in color. The kids' cover is so, so vibrant. And it's definitely part of what I love about it. And then Mirakami's characters just have this darkness to them um, while also maintaining a beauty. It, it's... I don't know, man. I could go on about it, clearly. Um, but now, uh, let's see. Um, so, Kanye West, his Yay album becomes his eighth consecutive number one album, tying with Eminem and the Beatles for most consecutive number one albums. This is fucking crazy, and I, I want to go into a little rant on this, or, or rather just thoughts that this evokes. So, um, let me read this to you first. Despite the controversy in the build-up to the album, Kanye West Ye has had a successful release. Um, after racking up more than 100 million streams inside three days, the album has now topped the Billboard 200, making it Kanye's eighth successful album to reach the number one slot. Um, our eighth successive album to reach the number one slot. Excuse me. Uh, the news won't come as a shock, with early figures indicating that Ye was on track to dominate the charts. Ye's first week saw 208,000 equivalent album units up to June 7th, with 85,000 of those being traditional album sales. These figures make it the fifth largest week for an album in 2018. The number one also means that Kanye is now tied with Eminem and the Beatles for the most consecutive number one albums. The figures released by Billboard also reveal that Ye received 180.1 million streams in its first week, making it the seventh biggest streaming week for an album ever. So what this makes me think is, I mean, when you look at that number, 180.1 million, how does, you know, 180.1 million streams, how does an album get to those levels, you know, these figures, I mean that the uh, 100 million inside the first three days i mean fuck man it, the physical sales alone is so shocking i mean that people still buy albums eighty-five thousand. um what it, so what stands out to me is and and i thought this initially when kanye was in the middle of his rants and controversy you know, people saying that he's, you know, canceled or that they're going to protest by not listening to his album or whatever the fuck, right? Like, that sounds great. But in the days of streaming, I think that's crucial that, that we're in the times of streaming and Ye sees that. And I don't know if he necessarily meant to cause 
I think the shock that he caused with the slavery comments and so forth were even shocking to him. I think that's clear in how he retreated to Wyoming and then just focused on the work itself. But um, I don't know, man. Every this is what stood out to me was everyone saying that they're not gonna, they're not gonna stream it, whatever. They're not gonna put money in his pocket. Ero even saying that he, you don't have to buy it, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but then seeing numbers like this, and it's really evident not only that people are they're they're going to listen even if it's out of morbid curiosity or because they want it to be bad you know but they're gonna listen they're gonna stream it um and also just that i mean this 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 sporadic promotion or yay's sporadic attitude and and just whatever created the perfect promotion in this streaming age you know, it's not going to affect your numbers. Had it been in the physical age, yeah, people would not go and buy the album. They would not go on iTunes and buy it. They wouldn't give you, you know, 10 or $7, whatever. Um, but now, in the streaming age, it's so accessible. It's right there. You're going to hear it being played by people around you. Um, Apple Music constantly playing whatever's, you know, they, I mean, they've been playing, yay, constantly. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I don't know, man, kind of sporadic thoughts here, but that's what stood out to me is just that it's perfect for the streaming age and these numbers prove that. Um, so it's really of no surprise and people are just, it's outrage culture, man. I mean, people are so quick to say they're going to protest something or they want to take action that will in turn hurt the person in, in their career but then when it comes time especially you know with streaming being so accessible they're going to listen and uh that's evident and Kanye proved that and and that's kind of unfortunate because I think going forward he proved that the model works I mean Ye could come out and say obviously he's one of our biggest artists you know an artist of the biggest stature that we have but it's kind of a a a green light to other artists, you know, who immediately comes to mind is, uh, Takashi, that you can do whatever the fuck, essentially say whatever the fuck, and just cause controversy, and you're going to, you're going to benefit from it financially when your album comes out, yeah, just have an album ready when you do dumb shit, and you'll be good, you know, and that's unfortunate, that's what I think artists will take from this, um, or at least newer artists that, that, I mean, it's desperate. It could be seen as strategic. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that is the negative that comes with this, with what this proves, but the numbers are undeniable. So with that being said, we move on to sneaker news. So the Yeezy Boost 700 Wave Runner Mauve is arriving soon. Um, gorgeous colorway. So, Kanye West gave a gave a first on-feet look at the new Adidas Yeezy Boost 700 Wave Runner Mauve back in March, and today we get a better look at the upcoming purple colorway, as well as a rumored release date courtesy of Yeezy Mafia. This new Wave Runner colorway is reportedly called Mauve and is slated for a November 2018 release as part of the Yeezy Season 7 collection. 
The blocky runner features various hues of dark purple and black throughout the multi-textile upper and sole unit, which is capped off with a gum outsole and neon yellow accents for a pop of contrast. Um, yeah, I just wanted to read that off to say this is probably one of my favorite Yeezys to date just because of the colorway alone. I mean, the model I'm a fan of, um, but this colorway just fucking it's top three for me i would say at least at least top three um i couldn't be looking forward to that more and uh yeah fucking sucks that it's so far out but um more time to save up i guess it's it's one to watch though um the tones are just so unique on it i mean the the dark purple the dark browns uh, fucking phenomenal yay's color palette I think that's fucking, you know, undisputed. You can't really fuck with that. Say what you want about his clothing, his designs, but his color palette, I think, is phenomenal. And it's really undeniable, in my opinion. But, uh, okay, so now on to more sneaker news. Uh, Virgil Abloh teases designs for his first Louis Vuitton sneaker, uh, along with clothing, bags, and accessories. Following the designer's latest footage inside the Louis Vuitton Altelier, Virgil Abloh has once again taken to Instagram to tease some new creations. Uh, through Louis Vuitton's social media, Abloh has revealed several key designs and details about the goods debuting at the brand's upcoming spring-summer 2019 collection. Um, described by Abloh as what I think is a classic sneaker, the creative reveals a sketch for a mid-top design emblazoned with the LV monogram and iconic floral pattern, describing the creation to an assistant, the designer wearing an AWGE and needles track jacket, notes that he liked to add gold or porcelain touches to the sneaker to make it feel more rich. The porcelain details will also tie in with his bag designs, which feature chains crafted from porcelain to replace the original straps. Further handiwork will give the impression that the chains were fired in a kiln accompanying a tote is a smaller is a small shoulder bag both executed in the classic brown leather with the lv monogram um tantalizingly few shots of the clothing appear in the stories but what is there appears to be classic abloh graphic tees sporty influences oversized coats and slouchy tailoring The house's monogram and branding appear throughout with an oversized LV placed on the rear of a massive coat. Both prints appear on trench coat inspired jackets while a snap button accented cape is executed in all black matching several low key tees and trousers. Pouches appear throughout the range. A holster bag style vest offers two built in options and Abloh sticks a small coin purse onto a layering piece in progress. Uh, noting that he wants to, like, take a Lewis piece and stick it on. And, uh, so yeah. I mean, go, it's on Hypebeast's, um, Instagram account that this video can be seen. Um, and I'm, I'm excited. I'm extremely excited for this upcoming show. Obviously, a, a phenomenal achievement for Virgil Abloh. And it's just interesting, um... This had me thinking that back in the day, what, maybe 10, 15 years ago now, uh, Kanye collaborated with Louis Vuitton on, uh, on three shoes, I believe. And, uh, and now 
Virgil is heading the the menswear. Or I believe the the entire collection. I'll have to get back to you guys, but I believe it's the entire collection. Um the entire spring summer twenty nineteen collection will be his first that he reveals uh since being the head at Louis Vuitton, but it's crazy to think, man, what a fucking achievement. You know, back then it was an achievement for Ye to just get that collab. And that was seen as like fucking crazy. And now Virgil's the head at Louis Vuitton. I don't know, man. Fucking exciting times. I couldn't be more excited. Um, so let me see if the date. So the clothing line, the spring summer 2019 collection is set to debut on June 21st in Paris. So, uh, yeah. And again, if you want to check out the video, Hypebeast Instagram, um, if you're into that. Now remaining in sneaker news. Nike officially reveals the React Element 87 and its drill-to-foam design process. So, after debuting on the Paris runway during Undercover's Fall Winter 18 show, Nike's React Element 87 has generated some buzz over the past few months. Similar to the Nike Epic React, you'll find a foam bed as the main source of the sneaker's comfortable ride. However, this iteration features an experimental tweak to that sole unit. In the model's official unveil, Nike states a drill experiment led a drill experiment led them to place holes throughout the sole with hopes of achieving superior comfort while standing, walking, shifting, and the occasional sprint. Um, through trial and error, designers discovered which hole depths and densities accompany, accomplished their comfort goals. At first, the whole process was one of those back-to-basics type of things, explained the footwear design lead for Nike Sportswear Innovation, Daryl Matthews. But then we took what we'd learned and applied it through computational design scripts. That's when things really started clicking. Additionally, the internationalist-inspired upper is comprised of 100% TPE textile yarn and shares a translucent look with a subtle heel cup to complete the design. Uh, retailing for $160, US the Nike React Element 87 launches on June 21st via sneakers in Asia, Latin America, and Greater China, sneakers in Europe, and select Nike sportswear retailers. A North America drop will follow on July 13th through sneakers, through sneakers app and select retailers. Um... This silhouette and design entirely is, just has me extremely excited. Uh, and I wanted to just take that time to, uh, you know, say hats off to Nike. I mean, all four colorways really are gorgeous. Um, I don't even know if I have a favorite right now. Just trying to get my hands on one is kind of what I'm focused on. I like the translucent uh, TPE upper. Um, yeah, dope design. Um, we'll see it, what was it, June, July 13th. Um, yeah, I couldn't be more excited. I give Nike a lot of shit. A lot of their stuff is stale and recycled, in my opinion. Um, so when I see something like this, I really want to give it what it deserves. Um, so now getting into, yes, again, the Drake and Pusha T beef. Um, some interesting stuff here, though. So, Jay Prince on his new book and convincing Drake to ignore Pusha T's diss track. So, he just goes a bit in depth in this interview. 
And um, let's see, there are a few questions. I don't want to drag this on too long because I know I've given it a ton of fucking coverage on this podcast. But um, I'm extremely interested, man. This is this will be shit that we talk about for years to come. And uh, and yeah, so I'll get. I, I want to give you guys a couple of these stories and then give my overall thoughts. And um, and we'll go from there. So let's see. Over the weekend, we learned you put in a phone call to Drake and asked him to avoid responding to Pusha T's The Story of Adi Nine. How much convincing did that take? Uh, he responds, me and Drake have a mutual respect for one another. When I speak, he listens. When he speaks, I listen. I spoke in a manner where it made sense. I didn't use my words loosely or lightly. I had some substance about what I said. Basically, in a nutshell, we have a situation that crossed the line of music. He dissed Drake's mom, he disrespected his father, he disrespected Forty, a man that's dying, who's ill. He crossed the line where music is concerned. We are we are people with a movement. This ain't happened with Drake by accident. When you have those kind of moments, it's a pig pen mentality, and you have to think in a situation like that. You don't embrace those in you don't embrace those invitations when you know it's an invitation that's above and beyond music. It's a pig pen invitation. You can jump in a pig pen and become a hog, or you can stay on solid ground and deal with the issue and keep moving on with your success. That's That was our decision. I told him he heard me, and I'm thankful he listened to it. On the other side, you didn't ask me this, but I'm going to volunteer this. Kanye has made one of the most intelligent decisions of his life to feel the same and not want this as well. He could have advocated differently, but I respect his decision. He told me he's a family man. I take him for his word. And all of that went into my decision to not allow Drake to damage the situation even further. So one of Good Music's most important producers is Mike Dean, who came up through Rap-A-Lot Records. Did he connect you to Kanye? This will be important in a moment. So he responds, Kanye and Mike Dean are close. I remember Kanye coming to Houston when Kanye was not on the radar to do things with Mike Dean. Uh, We go back that far. Definitely, when I spoke with him, he was in Mike Dean's presence. Even when I calculated everything, it was hard for me not to think about Mike Dean because I understand that's the way he eats. What What I heard being prepared by Drake was going to affect the rest of Kanye's career, and it was going to cripple Pusha. I thought about it all. I didn't think I didn't just think about us. I was thinking about the whole situation. We aren't in, in business to tear one another down, to destroy the way his family eats and the way he lives. With that being said, we're past it. Which is fucking fascinating. Um they ask, I think a lot of people were wondering why you give a damn about Kanye and Pusha's careers, but those connections help provide context. He responds, as I've heard from, and I've heard from the brother. I walked to West. I talked to West. Uh, there's a lot of reading. <laughs> and I've heard, and I heard from the brother. I talked to West. He didn't want this. He said, I'm a family man. So I feel the spirit of individuals. So I feel the spirit of individuals through the phone. And I'm like, nah, I understand what this man just, what this, un, what this man just done. But we're not like him. Why am I going to tell my man to do everything that I just found disrespectful? I've never been one to abuse my power. I try to do right. Uh, a lot of people think Drake is taking an L by not responding in hip hop or 
he's taking an L by not responding. And hip-hop reputation can mean a lot. What do you make of that? Jay Prince responds, They can have that opinion, but we know we're not taking an L. I think that's undeniable, but um, he goes on, We understand what we're doing, and we live and die by this decision we're making. So for those who feel that it's a bad decision where we're concerned, you've got that right. I don't, I don't even want to change their mind. That's their right. But that's not going to change what we're doing. Life continues. So um, I guess I'll finish with this last paragraph. Because uh, as it pertains to the beef, it's pretty interesting. So you told Sway that you thought this beef could reach Tupac and Biggie territory. What makes you think it could go, it could go that far? Whenever disrespect is fertilized, it can, I, it can always go there. When mother, father, and others are disrespected, it can always go there. I just got a text on my phone from somebody with a threat about staying away from Pusha T. I don't know where it came from, but I see addresses of people I know. Keep his name out of your mouth or else. And Jay Prince scrolls through his phone and shows a text message from a number that isn't saved as a contact. Um, Conspiracy theorists will say that it was a friend that sent it that was not in his contacts, but I don't know. Uh, he goes on, there are real-life situations we have to deal with. I understand where it can go, and I'm trying to circumvent it. Uh, but by the same token, I'm really the wrong person to be trying to go there with. I understand it, and I'm in a position to try to put an end to it. But the devil don't, but the devil don't even like peace. Believe it or not, he sees you going through peace, and he don't want it. That means nothing, but this decision, we, we're standing by it. And we're going to move on, or we're going to move along to do good business. Um, so, goddamn, man. Um, interesting shit. I mean, the text being sent to him, I don't know. Obviously, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical of the whole thing. This could all just be, again, to use this evidence to posture, you know, to kind of just back up the reason for backing out of the beef. I don't know. Um... Again, I, I pretty much stand in the same place, though. If it would, we'll never know. But if it would have escalated to that point, then I'm glad it stopped here. But we wouldn't know until it got there if we just kept rooting it on. So I guess I'm okay with the outcome. I mean, for Drake, we're, we're still awaiting some form of a response, which I think we're not entitled to, but I think is inevitable. So we'll see that likely in the coming weeks, I hope. Um let me skim through. So he he goes on. Uh, they ask, we've seen Drake battle with Meek Mill, and he's willing to battle with Pusha T. Um, and he was willing to battle with Pusha T. It seems clear that Drake isn't content with just reigning the charts. He wants to be respected as a lyricist. How often do you guys talk about that? We don't really talk about that, but I think he's already earned that. I think Drake has earned a lyricist position in the Hall of Fame but I definitely don't want him to jump in, in the pig pen to earn those kind of stripes. Had this been a level playing field situation like him and Meek or many others that happened before him where mothers weren't hurt and fathers weren't hurt, then maybe then may the best man win. But when you go into households and take it to those different levels, that's where it goes. They ask, Lil Wayne is currently in a legal dispute with Birdman over contracts and compensation. Has Drake been affected by this? He responds, I'm trying to help my son resolve his issue where cash money is concerned. 
we're making progress. Drake, his attorney, Drake, his attorneys handle that side of business with him. If he hasn't said nothing about it, he doesn't have no problem with it. We're about getting our business straight. I can't speak on Lil Wayne, but I think progress is being made all around. To the credit of Cash Money, they are moving forward with with getting us straight. So it's just an amount of time. Um, and then lastly, what kind of growth have you seen with Drake over the years? He responds, I'm the one who brought him to America. My son Jazz discovered him, and we brought him here. It goes back that far. And I believe in another story I read that it was on uh, MySpace that his son Jazz discovered Drake, told him about him, and then now look at look at what we have. Um, so incredible story. But it goes back that far. He's evolved as a man first. All around, I see him being more business-oriented. He's allowed his entrepreneurship to expand. The guy's a wise dude. He's far from stupid. Anybody who can deliver hits like that is very artistic. Sharp dude, constantly evolving. So a pretty interesting interview. I think I covered most of the interesting topics, but if you guys still want to read it, it was uh, Billboard. J. Prince with Billboard. So now we have... Pusha T saying that his beef with Drake is over. So the Clips member is, quote unquote, ready to be back to the music for real, which I highly doubt it's likely going to be at least a year, if not two years, till we hear anything from Push, unfortunately. Um, that's, just, that's just how he operates. It seems to be the cycle with Push because he puts out quality stuff and he knows that. And so he just, you know, puts that shit out uh, and then goes away. And it's unfortunate. I mean, I'm thankful for the artwork, but it's unfortunate. And I doubt that we'll see another project, although there were rumors about him and his brother recording again. But I feel like every album cycle, there are rumors about the clips getting back together. So until we hear anything else, fuck that. Um, I'm not buying it. But anyways, rapper Pusha T sat down with Vanity Fair for a talk encompassing everything from his recent album Daytona to that headline-grabbing feud with Drake. Uh, Pusha claims to be ready to be back to the music for real, and this interview seems to serve as a transition, turning the page on recent issues. In regards to the controversial yay listening party, Pusha affirms that there are absolutely positively no crazy nights in Wyoming. I don't know what um what controversy was around the yay listening party, but um, yeah, he responds, there are absolutely positively no crazy nights in Wyoming affirming that he was in the country to make music, get barbecue in town, take three-mile walks up the mountain, work out, and that's it. Uh, on Daytona's success, the good music president believes it's because I think, my, I think that my producer Kanye knows, the, knows, how to complete, or knows how to compete with the times. See, I don't think that what I do goes out of style. The fundamentals of hip-hop and rap and lyricism are double and double entendres and all that. Street culture doesn't go out of style. It's happening still right now. Um, as far as the Drake beef goes, Pusha restates that his brother No Malice proffered, um, this is a part of hip-hop. It's a part of hip-hop that my fans actually love, though the Six Gods fans may not care as much about it at the end of the day, Pusha doesn't know Pusha doesn't know what was lost or what was gained during the back and forth. But to my knowledge, it's all over. It's it it's all over with. Um 
Lastly, Pusha remarks on Kanye West's controversial statements about Donald Trump and slavery, admitting that he was worried at first because I, quote-unquote, knew nothing was going to be louder than that, even the album he'd been working on. In the, la- in the light of the controversy, I knew I wasn't going to do press. <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to do press. That's fucking crazy. I had no intention on doing any press before the album release. I didn't have any singles. I had nothing. And then if I was, and then if I was going to do press, we were just going to talk about everything he was doing. Um, I don't know, man. Uh, so let's go on. There's more shit, believe it or not. Um, so last week, Pusha T announced that his beef with Drake was all over with. In an interview with Vanity Fair, I promise this will be more informational. It's not redundant, although it seems like it is right now. Um, today, the Resolve feud came up again in a newly published profile for GQ, where Pusha T also discussed his latest album, Daytona, in addition to his relationship with Kanye West, and explained why he's one of the hardest rappers in the game. Um, so, on If Daytona was meant to be summer music, there was no intention of it being summer music. I definitely was trying to make car music. I call it pull up and park music. Pull up at the store, pull up on the corner park blast the shit roll the windows down everybody circling around the car that's what it's meant for um on one of the main themes on daytona which is time and the luxury of having time as in the clock ticking on his artistic prime i haven't thought of that actually it's just it just dawned on me i was like who's 16 years into their career and really doing it like this i just feel like this is how we're supposed to see rap mature i think it's how it's supposed to go which you have to give Push credit for on that regard. He has matured. Well, I mean, people would criticize that it's all been the same the whole time. But, I mean, he's just... I, I think he's matured. His his lines have only gotten sharper, even though they're about the same subject matter. Um, so, on being president of good music and how the role has impacted his own music, it hasn't. I feel like my music is something I'm certain no one else... in no one else in the game does. Lyrically, I don't think there's anyone in the game who articulates the way that I do. I feel like when me and Ye are together, rhymes on top of production, you're getting the highest quality of street music that you can get. So when I hear new stuff, I like it, I admire it, I see the potential in it, but it never makes me want to do it because I just feel like what I do is what I do. Um, Which is admirable, regardless of if you're tired of what he constantly does. I mean, that's admirable. He's making what he loves and, you know, doing it to the best of his ability. Um, Now he goes on on if old stuff inspires him. He responds, old feelings and old energy. I hear hear Raekwon's incarcerated scar faces, and I'm like, I want that feeling. On his experience in Wyoming with Kanye West, he says, It had a very rehab type of feel, secluded away, super laser focused on the music, clean living, disconnected from everybody except for those who are about the art. Um, I was just focused on health, on anything weird that happened and if he was scared, which is random as fuck, but I guess you would have to read the full interview. Um, These are just highlights of it. Um, So in that regard, on anything weird that happened and if he was scared. He responds, I was chased by a fox. I ran, but it kept coming towards me. For sure, I'm not an outdoors person. I guess I was in Wyoming. Push was almost eaten by a fucking, <laughs> by a fucking fox. Um, 
on Kanye West's support of Trump and the things he said to TMZ, saying slavery was a choice, and if it changed how he looks at him at all. No, I feel like he's an opinionated friend, and when and we don't have to agree. And we haven't agreed on a lot of things in life, and we're still friends. Nine times out of ten, I feel like if I argue my opinion, I'm going to come up with way more facts. I feel like he moves off of feeling a lot. I'm around him enough to know that he says certain things and and then he'll see something that doesn't agree that he'll see something that doesn't even agree with something that he says and he'll be passionate about that as well. Um I sort of feel like our relationship is one of the more easygoing ones because there's because there's never cuz there's really never a lot of pressure with me. It's like, "Hey man, do you want to work on some music? All right, yeah, let's do it. If not, I'll just go work elsewhere." And it's the luxury of time. When you have the luxury of time, that takes a lot of stress off the situation, especially when you're not the only one in the situation. On his thoughts on the summer of 2015 when Drake and Meek Mill were trading barbs, I just realized that the age of social media weighed less on the truth and more on entertainment. And I felt like it was just a little different. Because I was just like, man, if some if some of the revelations that came out then had happened a while ago, in the way the rap game had, uh, in the way, in the rap game, people would be like, what? No way. Uh, which is very interesting. Um, on the cover of the story, on the cover for the story of Adinan and his thoughts on the context of the picture and where it comes from. See, I don't know. I I just don't know me being a black man. That's something I'm totally against. Uh, I'm just like, how could you be that comfortable ever? Just for me, there's no way that's ever comfortable. Um, so who knows? I think he's really holding... Maybe that is really his beliefs, and I'll give that to him. But initially, I thought that he was really going in on the topic especially on The Breakfast Club, to uh, stir up controversy and to get people outraged. Um, but I don't know. We'll, we'll never know. So on Drake's explanation for the picture, saying it was to raise awareness for black actors struggling to get roles, um, that's, not an explanation, uh, that's not an explanation that I would accept. On his reaction to Jay Prince saying that Drake has a response track that would ruin careers, but that Jay Prince stopped Drake from releasing it, you know, I don't know. I just feel like if there was something that was beneficial for either of those two guys, they would do it. I think they're into doing anything that's beneficial for them. Um, on if it's a bluff or that they're scared and if the beef is fun. I don't want to call them scared. I just want to say that they're thinking. They're doing what's best for them. Yeah, I felt like the whole idea of a battle, I don't know, was what was gained or what was lost. Um on how rap battling in the social media era is different. It's different because there's a lot of sympathy and compassion and things that like I didn't things that I didn't know existed. Um that's why I don't that's why it's not fun for me anymore. Uh bro, it's weird. It's so weird. There's a sentimental aspect that I didn't know existed, but new rules. I'm learning and discovering a whole bunch of new rules in the rap game and I'll just leave it at that. So that was an interview with GQ I thought very informational. I found it very interesting. Wanted to pass it on to you guys. For sure, it's a fuck ton of reading. And excuse my mistakes. There are plenty, but uh, I, I feel I have faith that you guys will forgive them. Um, pretty interesting shit. And it only gets more interesting from here. Um, Maury Povich has invited Drake 
onto his show to take a, a paternity test. So after Pusha T claimed that Drake had a secret son on his diss track, The Story of Adi Nan, the internet w has, has buzzing, is buzzing to find out if the claim is true. Um, during a recent encounter with TMZ TV host Maury Povich offered to have the Canadian artist come on his show, Maury, to clear things up once and for all. It seems that Maury wants the sixth god to take a paternity test on his show to prove whether or not he's indeed the biological father of former adult film star Sophie Brousseau's child. With rumors continuing to build, Drake will soon have to answer the question on many people's minds. Who knows if it if he will be taking the very public offer? Um fucking crazy man. What world do we live in? Maury even reaching out. And then in the in the most shocking turn in the past week, we see Pharma Bro, Martin Screlly, the dude who's behind bars serving, I believe, seven years in prison. Um he has weighed in on the beef and uh, saying that he has the diss track, Drake's diss track. So Drake, Kanye West, and Pusha T's diss track is coming, according to Martin Shkreli. Uh The feud between Drake and Pusha T may continue, even though Pusha announced last week his beef with the Canadian superstar is over. Though Drake has yet to publicly respond to Pusha's scathing diss track, The Story of Arinan, According to Farmer Bro Martin Screlly, a Drake response uh, a Drake response track does exist, and Screlly is in possession of it. Continuing to boast about his alleged uh, connections with the hip hop world, Screlly claims that he has a USB with Drake's response on it. Asking a friend to help announce the news, Screlly made a statement over Facebook, which can be seen below. I'm pleased to hear Lil Wayne's The Carter Five will be released soon, and his litigation has been settled. It is a great addition to his already impressive corpus. Uh, additionally, there he is with the legal terms. Goddamn. Um, additionally, I, I am pleased to report my offices have received an unmarked USB disc containing USB disc. What the fuck? Uh, containing what appears to be unpublished and newly created tracks by Drake, referencing recent events with respect to Pusha T and Kanye West. There are 10 tracks, and some appear to be demo tracks by an unnamed artist to inspire a forthcoming, fully produced, disrespect musical piece. I would normally share a snippet, as I have in the past, but my present situation negates this possibility. Screlly is currently serving a seven-year sentence in prison for securities fraud. So from fucking prison, this motherfucker is still trolling. That shit blows my mind, man. Um, so much here. So much shit. Uh, so the J Prince threats, we'll never know. We'll never know if that shit's true or staged. Uh, I'm skeptical. But also, a Pusha T being done with it, that makes sense. I mean, you know, he, he bodied Drake in one track. Um, disrespectfully, but he, he did it. And, um, I don't know, man, how we have to hear something from Drake in the coming weeks. Again, I don't know if it'll be a track that's more heartfelt. I, I really doubt we'll hear that diss track. Um, unless Martin Screlly has something to say about it. I don't fucking know. That would cause utter chaos. Cause just imagine that. Imagine Drake recorded this diss track. It was going to be very damaging and it's kind of, scary to hear it from jay prince saying that you know kanye's a family man and it would completely destroy that 
Like, what the fuck type of information does he have? Um, that that's worrisome for me because I don't I don't want that for Kanye. I could only could you imagine with the fragile mental state that Kanye's in? On a serious note, and the the fragile mental state that Kanye's in, that diss track comes out and causes you know divorce between him and Kim. And uh, I don't know. I don't even want to think about that shit. That that would be. I don't want to see that, but, um, but who knows, they could just be blowing smoke, you know, um, so I don't know, man, if we, but just think about the chaos that would cause, so Drake records it, they deem it, it would just cause too much chaos, let's step away, you know, be the bigger man, I guess, and then Martin Scarelli, the the biggest troll of all time, in jail, releases this shit, and fucking, I mean, obviously Push is going to respond to it. It's still going to cause the damage that it would to apparently both Kanye and Push's career. Or we'll see, you know, we'll hear it and be like, there's actually nothing here. And you guys were just bluffing the whole time. Um, I don't know, but just think, and then it, say it is as damning as they say. Kanye's going through what he goes through. Push then has to respond. He does. I would imagine you would do so, right? That would be a weird situation that Push would be in. Because it's like Drake didn't necessarily release it. He recorded it, but then, you know, was advised against it and followed that. I don't know, man. Um, Who knows? I mean, we'll see. I don't don't put much weight in... uh, in the word of Martin Screlly, I, I just kind of think he's trolling. He's he's known for that. So uh, this is nothing new. But if he does have anything like he says he does, it could it could get interesting. But um, regardless, that aside, we're going to have to see a response in the coming weeks, I would feel. I believe Drake has, what, the 22nd for the release date? Or maybe that's just what I've heard. I, I know it's definitely in June, so we'll have to see... Um, some form of a response, man. How upset would you guys be if it just is left here? And we, you know, we never hear that diss track. He just comes out with Scorpion, you know, explains a little bit on it, but that's about it. I mean, I don't know, man. It'll. I feel like it'll forever be talked about. Like, you know, we'll be telling our kids, like, yeah, like, Drake got bodied, like, can you say bodied, bodied, like, you know, like, we're gonna be fucking telling our kids about this shit, and the track that we forever, that was just rumored, and we never heard, I don't know, man, um, it's gonna be interesting, an interesting coming weeks, uh, fuck, man, who knows, who knows what Drake's going through, you know, the recent IG posts, I don't know, man, we'll have to see, it's gonna be interesting, I can guarantee that, um, but now getting into the closing of the podcast, finally, um, it was, so I read this over the weekend, the Fenman technique. So with the Fenman technique, you learn by teaching someone else a topic in simple terms so you can quickly pinpoint the holes in your knowledge. After four steps, you're able to understand concepts more deeply and better, and better retain the information. 
Um, so the Fenman technique is a mental model that was coined by Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Fenman. Uh, known as the Great Explainer, Fenman was revered for his ability to clearly illustrate dense topics like quantum physics for virtually anybody. In Fenman's lost lecture, The Motion of Planets Around the Sun, David, Go- David Goodstein writes that Fenman prov- uh, prided himself on being able to explain the most complex ideas in the simplest terms. So again, kind of going to that, um, well, not again, but in my mind, it, it directly correlates with if you can't explain it in the simplest terms or to a child, then you don't fully understand it to the best of your ability, right? Um, so Goodstein once asked Fenman to explain why spin one-half particles obey Fermi Dirac, which I don't even know if that's fucking English, but uh, Fenman replied that he'd prepared a freshman lecture on it, but then he came back a few days later empty-handed. I couldn't reduce it to a freshman level, he admitted to Goodstein. Um, That means we don't really understand it. That is to say, if if Fenman couldn't explain something in simple terms, there was a problem with the information, not with Fenman's teaching ability. The Fenman technique is laid out clearly in James Gleick's 1993 biography, Genius, The Life and Science of Richard Fenman. Uh, in the book, Gleick explains in method, the method in terms of how Fenman mastered his, his exams at Princeton University. He opened a fresh notebook. On the title page, he wrote, Notebook of Things I Don't Know About. For the first but not the last time, he reorganized his knowledge. He worked for weeks at disassembling each branch, each branch of physics, oiling the parts, and putting them back together, looking, looking all well for the raw edges and inconsistencies. He tried to find the essential kernels of each subject. This is the first part of the process, but let's take a look at all four steps. 1. Pick a topic you, you want to understand and start studying it. Write down everything you know about the topic on a notebook page and add to that page every time you learn something new about it. Two, pretend to teach your topic to a classroom. Make sure you're able to explain the topic in simple terms. Three, go back to to the books when you get stuck. The gaps in your knowledge should be obvious. Revisit problem areas until you you can explain the topic fully. Four, simplify and use analogies. Repeat the process while simplifying your language and connect facts with analogies to help strengthen your understanding. The Fenman technique is perfect for learning a new idea, understanding an existing idea better, remembering an idea, or studying for a test. So, I mean, it's simple, four steps, but um, I just thought it was interesting and beneficial, especially to anyone out there in school. It's probably along the lines of what you already do, but it's definitely something to try. Um... So with that being said, I found it beneficial. Um, I hope you guys do as well. And uh, same with the podcast. I hope you guys, I'm, I really am excited um, trying to create thought-provoking conversation and being entertaining in the process or kind of intertwining the two. Um, and if I'm not doing it to the best of my abilities, which I'm, I'm sure I'm not, I'm only getting better. And that's what I love about it. Um, so thank you guys for your time. Uh, just know that I, I love each and every one of you guys and, um, yeah, I'll talk to you guys on the next podcast. Peace.